Today, we'll be discussing some of the challenges that we all face as orthopedic trauma surgeons in treating non-unions. Our brief outline for this mini-series of episodes will be a brief introduction of some patient evaluation principles, which Dr. Goodspeed will go over. He calls it a checklist for non-unions, and he'll, he'll describe some of the aspects of patient evaluation that are critically important when thinking about non-union treatment. Then we'll move on to Dr. Spence Reed, and he'll give us some biomechanical principles to keep in mind. And then the third episode will be Dr. Jerry Lang talking about some of the biological treatment principles for non-unions. And then we'll have a fourth episode during which we'll discuss some cases that illustrate some of these core principles as they're applied to individual patients. Welcome to the OTA Podcast, your home for conversations with leading experts in orthopedic trauma. Please note that the views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Orthopedic Trauma Association or its members. This message is from OTA sponsor BioVentus. Treating non-union fractures can be challenging, especially in today's environment. Exogen may help. For 25 years, the Exogen Ultrasound Bone Healing System has been trusted by over 10,000 physicians to treat over a million patients. So if you're thinking about using an adjunct therapy for non-union fractures, think Exogen. Learn more at exogen.com radio. Exogen is indicated for the healing of non-union fractures and for accelerating the healing of indicated fresh fractures with no known contraindications. Well, hello and welcome to the OTA podcast channel. I'm your host, Paul Whiting from the University of Wisconsin, and we're excited today to bring you a non-union symposium, part of our more educational content on the OTA podcast channel. And today we'll be discussing some of the challenges that we all face as orthopedic trauma surgeons in treating non-unions. We have a great panel of experts, two of whom happen to be my colleagues here at the University of Wisconsin, my senior partners, Dr. Dave Goodspeed and Dr. Jerry Lang. And we're also joined by Dr. Spence Reed from Penn State. And we're just very excited to go over some principles of non-union treatment, both starting from the evaluation of patients, and then we'll go on to some of the principles, both biomechanical principles and some of the biological principles that are, are necessary to be keeping in mind when we're treating these. So our brief outline for this mini series of episodes will be a brief introduction of some patient evaluation principles, which Dr. Goodspeed will go over. He calls it a checklist for non-unions, and he'll he'll describe some of the aspects of patient evaluation that are critically important when thinking about non-union treatment. Then we'll move on to Dr. Spence Reed, and he'll give us some biomechanical principles to keep in mind. And then the third episode will be Dr. Jerry Lang talking about some of the biological treatment principles for non-unions. And then we'll have a fourth episode during which we'll discuss some cases that illustrate some of these core principles as they're applied to individual patients. And so without further ado, I'd like to turn it over to Dr. Dave Goodspeed to go over his non-union checklist. Thanks, Paul. So when thinking about non-union surgery, I don't think there's any surgery that requires preoperative planning more than a hard non-union surgery. You have to think about what things you need to correct, what instruments you're going to use, the order of your surgery, and sometimes it's just hard to keep it all straight in your head. And so I've kind of come up with, for me, my own little non-union preoperative checklist, and it has eight things on it. So 
In basketball, we have the Final Four and the Elite Eight. I didn't think Elite Eight sounded right for non-union surgery, so I call it the Grade Eight. So I'd like to share those with you now, and maybe this is something that you could jot down and develop your own checklist as you go through your career and become a non-union expert. So Grade Eight, number one, malalignment. Number two, hardware, broken hardware or even intact hardware. Number three, biology of the patient systemically. Number four, biology of the patient locally. Number five, mechanical and stability issues. Number six, seven, and eight are kind of a triad. Number six, infection. Number seven, bone loss. And number eight, soft tissue loss or coverage needs. So I'd like to discuss each of these just a little bit. I know you don't have slides, so I'll try to remind you where we are on the checklist. So number one, malalignment. Does your non-union have malalignment? You need good films for this. And oftentimes these are films you have to hold for. It's not unusual for me to run over to the technicians and help hold for proper x-rays in order to uh, preoperatively plan. Sometimes these are long alignment films. They can often be films of the other side. CT scans are good, but really much of the malalignment planning comes from x-rays themselves. Intraoperatively, the AO distractor can be a friend to help you get rid of malalignment intraoperatively, and oftentimes we have to use osteotomies or at least osteoclysis to make the non-union mobile. So the uh, osteotomies themselves can be used to also enhance biology by producing fresh healing ends of the non-union. So that's malalignment. Number two, hardware. Hardware is the real X factor. I think we've all been associated with cases that have gone poorly with hardware removals. I have a, a slide in front of me that brings back painful memories of, of a hardware case that both Paul and I took a swing at. And Paul, you remember that? Oh my goodness. I won't even tell you how many hours it took, but just incredibly hard. So when you have hardware, especially broken hardware, it's important to have good extraction sets, broken hardware removal sets available. There are several that are commercially available, and that's part of your non-union repertoire of, of instruments. Sometimes I think it's good to take the hardware out in one stage and then proceed with the non-union repair as a second stage. When would that be a good idea? I think either when the hardware removal itself is going to be hard or when you're concerned about infection and you want to get intraoperative cultures, perhaps have the patient on antibiotics and let him sit for a while before coming back for the second stage. So consider taking hardware out as its own separate surgery. Number three, biology systemically. Now, Journey Mater system is, was originally designed for tumors, but is also very well accommodating for non-union surgery. And most all of us are familiar with it. A host is healthy. A B host can be compromised, and a C host is so sick that it's either suppressive, non-operative treatment, or perhaps amputation is the only surgical option. Most of the time, we're trying to deal with, in a systemic sense, between an A host and a B host, and also in a local sense between an A host and a B host. So when I think about systemic biology, I think about three or four of the what I call a big three. The big three would be tobacco use, malnutrition, which would include vitamin D deficiency, and diabetes. And there are a bunch of other things as well, which I have listed on this slide, but if you can just at least think of those big three. And that leads us to three or four labs that would be 
I consider routine on most all non-union preoperative workups. And that would be vitamin D level. Number two, a hemoglobin A1C for those that are diabetic. And number three, a urine nicotine for those that were a smoker. And they have to be urine nicotine negative in order to have the surgery. And I think a fourth one in this list would probably be an albumin as well. Other labs that can be useful, perhaps some of the time would be other nutrition labs such as prealbumin or transferrin, endocrine labs such as PTH, TSH, calcium, creatinine, and then occasionally even consider an endocrine referral preoperatively for either uh, parathyroid hormone supplementation or even testosterone supplementation. Mark Brinker has a good article from JOT of several years ago, which talks about the high incidence of metabolic abnormalities in patients with non-unions. So that's biology systemically. What about biology locally? That's number four on the checklist. This would be starting externally looking at the skin, prior scars, vascular disease, hemostasis, XRT, looking inside with x-rays to look for either good or poor biologic response. So a hypertrophic non-union is usually a sign of good local biology, whereas an atrophic non-union would be a sign of perhaps poor local biology and in need of biological supplementation. And Jerry's going to talk more about that later, so I'm not going to belabor the point now, but when you have a poor local biology, think about things like autograft or bone marrow aspirate, BMPs, other such things. Okay, so now number five, moving on to the mechanical stability portion of the case. So we all remember our basic AO course where we talked about absolute stability and then relative stability and then really no stability and think about stability as a spectrum. And you want to look at where your non-union is, what type of stability was it strove, striven for? How about that for a new word? <laughs> what they strove for in the initial case, and then what type of stability you're going to try to obtain during your case. I think one general rule is to try to avoid that in-between land between absolute stability and relative stability where you've got a a gap fixed rigidly, that's oftentimes not going to heal and is usually a cause of non-union in itself. I would say that in general, as a general rule, we tend to work towards more stability in non-union cases. Not always, but more often than not, we're working towards greater stability. And I would consider absolute stability as a goal, particularly when you have a previously failed relative stability construct, when you have a simple non-union line, or when your non-union is in the metaphysis. It will be interesting for us to look at cases and see how that absolute stability or increased stability was attained. And it can be obtained through either internal fixation or even through external fixation. Okay, so now the last three, six, seven, and eight. Remember I said this is kind of a triad that oftentimes occurs together. Number six, infection. You should consider that as a possibility in all non-unions in which there was previous surgery or a previous open fracture. You want to look for history of drainage. You want to look for peri-hardware lucency. And I think in any of these situations, you want to have preoperative labs. Remember we talked about labs for systemic biology. We also have infection labs. And the main three would be the white count, a SED rate, and a CRP. 
A good article to look at is Stuckin from JBJS in 2013. And that looks at the usage of these labs in predicting infection. And it turns out if all three of these labs are normal, it doesn't mean that you can't have an infection, but in their study, infection was 18% or less if all three of those white count, sedate, and CRP were normal. So you want to be thinking about those as preoperative labs. In addition, preoperative imaging, advanced imaging, MRI, and CT. I oftentimes get CT for most non-unions, but I will also get an MRI in conjunction with a CT when I'm concerned about infection. CT, I think, is better for defining bony anatomy, looking for bony erosions, and the MRI can look at marrow signal and try to define the extent of the infection, keeping in mind that MRI overdefines or is very sensitive and sometimes makes the infection look worse than it is. What about tagged white cell scan? In that same article by Stuckinate, they looked at the usage of that and found that it really did not add and sometimes even detracted from the uh, usefulness of predicting infection. So I tend not to use that anymore. Number seven, bone loss. This can be created by the injury. Sometimes it can be created by you when you eradicate an infection. It can be small, it can be large, it can be cavitary, can be segmental. I think two main categories to deal with bone loss, one is to fill it in with something that is oftentimes a bulk autograft with a masculine technique. And very often we combine that with a rhea as a bone source. We could also use allograft plus a biologic that combination is shown to be useful as well. That's the fill in the uh, defect category. But I think the other category is using distraction uh, osteogenesis, particularly with bone transport. And I think this is a very dependable, probably the most dependable way to deal with bone loss. Another way to, to use distraction osteogenesis is with acute shortening and then distant lengthening within the same bone. And I find this to be a really, really useful, I would say becoming more and more used in my practice over time. If I have a, an area with bone loss or infection or malalignment, I can get rid of that whole problem by just cutting out the bad area, making two nice parallel cuts that will now be aligned when the bone is aligned. I can squeeze them together and then I can come back and lengthen the bone at a distant site. So that's also another way to deal with bone loss, very good way. And then lastly would be soft tissue loss, uh, particularly that needs coverage. Now remember that a vac dressing is not a substitute for a plastic surgeon, so be nice to your plastic surgeon. You want to start your coverage planning early because the coverage sometimes has to be used or the timing of it has to be made in conjunction with the fixation. So typically, if you're going to fix your non-union with a frame, you want to get the coverage on before the frame. If you're going to fix your non-union with a nail or plate, you want to do that first and then do the coverage second. So you need to have that consistent discussion with a plastic surgeon and beware that a frame can be a very nice way to deal with the whole triad that we talked about, the bone loss and the uh, infection and coverage. One last thing is that sometimes with induced deformity, where we actually induce a deformity, it can actually obviate the need for coverage altogether. Joe Shu has a nice article in JOT about that. So I think then this brings us back to our, our checklist. We've gone through all eight of those. I'm going to read them again. Number one, malalignment. Number two, hardware, oftentimes broken can be taken out as a 
stage in and of itself. Number three, systemic biology. Number four, local biology. Number five, mechanical stability issues. Number six, infection. Number seven, bone loss. And number eight, soft tissue loss. Now you've got all those done. You've got your checklist done. You're ready for takeoff. Well, thank you, Dr. Goodspeed, for laying that out for us. I think having the checklist organized and presented in such a systematic manner is incredibly important and helpful for all of us practicing surgeons who treat non-unions all the time, but also some of the trainees, fellows, and orthopedic residents who are listening to this. So really appreciate you being able to break it down in such a careful and systematic way for us. Before we end this episode, I I wanted to ask uh, Dr. Spence Reed or Dr. Jerry Lang, our other faculty guests on this episode, did you have any thoughts or additional points or questions that you wanted to go over in response to Dr. Goodspeed's laying out that that list of eight checklist items for non-unions? This message is from OTA sponsor BioVentus. Treating non-union fractures can be challenging, especially in today's environment. Exogen may help. For 25 years, the Exogen Ultrasound Bone Healing System has been trusted by over 10,000 physicians to treat over a million patients. So if you're thinking about using an adjunct therapy for non-union fractures, think Exogen. Learn more at exogen.com radio. Exogen is indicated for the healing of non-union fractures and for accelerating the healing of indicated fresh fractures with no known contraindications. Yes. Uh, first of all, Dave, great talk. I, I've heard that talk before and I, and I, I really enjoy it and it, it lays it out so nicely. I actually, I wanted to make a comment about the pre-op labs. One of the things we're kind of always doing now is making sure we're checking vitamin D and PTH together because you know we're seeing vitamin D levels in the single digits sometimes with some significant secondary hyperparathyroidism. And basically, I won't operate on those people until their vitamin D level comes up and they're PTH level comes down. And occasionally, really unusually, sometimes their PTH level won't come down, even with a normal vitamin D level. And now you've got a case of primary hyperparathyroidism. And it's not common, but if you do enough non-union surgery, you will see a case of primary hyperparathyroidism. So I just wanted to make that point. And Spence, when do you, in that situation, when do you send them to uh, endocrine preoperatively? I won't do it if they've got secondary. So I'll, I'll first normalize the vitamin D level, get it up in the mid-30s, and recheck the parathyroid. And if it's not coming down or close to normal, that's when I'll refer them. So Dave, I had a question. It has to do with the biology of the host. And uh, you clearly pointed out that sometimes the biology of the host is the deal breaker. What are deal breakers for you? Because we see people with chronic diseases that sometimes are not appropriate candidates for other types of surgery but perhaps for some fractured non-union surgery, they are. And also, do you think that continued tobacco abuse is a absolute? Take the last question first. Continued smoking in the presence of a non-union, which is not an urgent surgery for some other reason on its own, is a deal breaker for me. I will not do surgery on them. I feel that they're asking me to do as good a job as I can. And I don't feel I can do that unless they do their part as well and optimize the situation from their end. So I don't think it's asking too much of them. I know it's asking a lot, but I don't think it's asking too much of them to quit smoking. Again, if it was a 
I guess some kind of a non-union where the bone was sticking out of their leg or something. I, I obviously I probably ethically couldn't hold off on that, but if I can ethically hold surgery until they've done smoking, I, I will do it. Other things that might be deal breakers from a non-union severe liver disease, I think is also uh, would be very hard unless the non-union surgery itself is really life threatening. I think that would be a bad one for me. And then again, sort of like smoking, the same thing on the diabetes thing is they got to get their hemoglobin A1C at least into a ballpark of normal range. It doesn't have to be, I'm not asking it to be seven, but I don't want it to be in double digits either. So I think it's not too much to ask them to do that as well. Yeah. Great, great discussion. Great points. And obviously these are challenging cases in and of themselves, not to mention the the challenging state of, of the host. I actually just operated on a lady that I had asked to stop smoking and it took her about 10 months to quit smoking. Somehow, remarkably, she actually stopped smoking during COVID when most people are probably finding that even harder to do because you can't go anywhere, but she actually did. And so, you know, I think it is possible if people, I, I agree with what you said, Dr. Goodspeed. I had a patient who was morbidly obese, two pack a day smoker, and had a non-union of sort of a, a anterior part of their pelvic ring. And it was painful. And, and I looked at this lady and I said, you lose 100 pounds and you stop smoking. I'll operate on your pelvis. And I sort of sent her on her way going like, yeah, we'll never see that one again. Comes back a year later, 100 pounds lighter, not smoking. I didn't recognize her. She says, I want my surgery now. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, that never happens. I guess if you wanted it badly enough, you'll you'll do what it takes, huh? And Spence, you know, you taught me the line, look at your leg, look at your cigarette, decide which one you want more. I've used that on several patients and it works quite effectively. In fact, I've had patients tell me that. That's a great line. I got it from you and I, I use it all the time. Several more of us are going to steal that. So I hope you don't mind, Dr. Reed. Um, so. <laughs> Any other closing comments from Jerry or, or Spence about Goody's Talk? I just wanted to emphasize that clinical judgment is really important in patient selection. I think we learn, unfortunately, by the mistakes we've made by operating on people we should not have. And the reason you don't operate them is because you can't help them. So when, when complication rates are very, very high, or you just are not, you have an unsolvable problem, you need to be honest with yourself and your patient. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much, guys, for the discussion. And again, to Dr. Goodspeed for laying out that checklist for us. Stay tuned for episode two, in which uh, Dr. Spence Reed will talk about biomechanical considerations and non-union treatment. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to the OTA Podcast, a Convey MD production. Make sure you don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the OTA channel wherever you get your podcast. And to learn more about becoming a member and providing the highest quality orthopedic trauma care, visit the Orthopedic Trauma Association at OTA.org.